We will turn to two places in Scripture this afternoon. I know I I listed only one, Isaiah 53. Afterwards, we'll also turn to Colossians chapter 1. But first, Isaiah 53. This is in connection with the topic of this afternoon, the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 53, and we'll read that chapter. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So far, Isaiah 53. Let's also turn to the New Testament, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll read verses 15 through 29. So Colossians 1, 15 through 29. Colossians 1 verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now we're going to pay special attention to verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read especially from Isaiah. Let's sing together from Psalm 69, stanza 7, the words of Christ himself on the cross. I misspoke. Those are not the the words of Christ on the cross, in case you stumbled over that. Uh, They are applied to Christ on the cross, just for the sake of clarification. We are this week, this afternoon, looking at the sufferings of Christ expressed in those words, And for that, we turn to Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is on page 529 of your books of praise. There the question is, what do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have any special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we began last week to look at the the history of, of Christ's life, beginning with his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
And it's interesting, if you think about the Apostles' Creed, maybe it doesn't strike you as odd anymore because you've heard it and recited it many times over. But it's interesting that the very next line in the Creed is about Christ's death, or at least the suffering that led up to his death. Any other great figure in history would probably be remembered for something between their birth and their death. But the Apostles' Creed goes straight from his birth to his suffering and death. Now, that isn't because his earthly ministry wasn't important or didn't matter. It certainly did matter. It was in his earthly ministry that he explained what his death was all about, what we must do to be saved, what the kingdom of God looks like. But his earthly ministry ultimately itself pointed ahead to his death. And it was during that time he explained what his death was going to mean. His greatest work was his suffering and death. And so if you look through your Bibles also, you would notice that even the gospel accounts themselves devote a hugely disproportionate space to the last week of Christ's life and especially to the moments of his last suffering and death. They don't quite jump straight from birth to death, the way that the creed does, but they devote a great amount of space to that last week, which ended in his death. About a third of the Gospels in total is devoted to that last week of his life. And so that's our focus also for this afternoon on Christ's suffering. And and I'll show first what it means that Christ suffered in our place I know these are familiar things to many of us, but things we must always be reminded of. And then I hope to also look at something that Paul says in Colossians 1. And so I titled the second half of the message, Let us, therefore, fill up his afflictions. And that's the words of Paul. Well, even though the Gospels do focus on that very last week, of Christ's life, it is important for us to recognize, as the Catechism also says, that Christ didn't only suffer for us during those last moments. His entire life was a life of suffering. And that began already the moment He came to be born among us. To, to imagine what it would have been like for Christ to leave the, his, perfectly, his perfect heavenly home and visit earth, the best way to think of that is if you've ever visited a homeless shelter, what that experience is like. Have you ever visited a homeless shelter? If you have, you, you, you know what I'm speaking of, the, the, un, the discomfort that it can very quickly bring. You have to deal with the smells and, and the sights and strange people all around that might have very little respect for your personal space. It's, it's an experience that is, is noble. It takes a great amount of courage to, to serve in those places. But it's also a place that makes you feel instinctively uncomfortable. You start to miss home. Well, that's maybe a good metaphor for what it's like for Christ to visit earth from his home in heaven, to give up a perfect, blessed existence with the Father and live among sinners like us with all of our brokenness and addictions and our selfishness and the damage that we do to ourselves and to one another. Christ made his home for so many years among us. Besides only 
changing his dwelling, also by becoming a, a human, as we saw last week, he became a true human, he also began to experience the weakness of what it means to be human, the weakness of our human nature in a broken world, the, the hunger, the thirst, the sadness, the pain, the frustration that is inherent to human life. Christ never had to take those on himself. He did so willingly to stand among us. He, he also knew what it was like to be poor. He lived among the poorest of the poor. He knew what it was like to not have the basic necessities of life. Already you see that in, in the moment of his birth. Not born in a fancy palace, not born even in a home, but born in a barn among animals. He endured insults during his life. He endured betrayal also from his closest friends. He en endured slander, people speaking falsehoods about him. He endured rejection by many people, his own people, that he was seeking to buy by his blood. He endured contempt from the vast majority of the people that he came to dwell among. His own brothers, you can read this in the gospel accounts, his own brothers at first thought he was a little crazy. They thought he should go home, he should finish his preaching, he should quit his preaching ministry. The Pharisees spread rumors about him. They insulted him, sometimes behind his back and sometimes even to his face. His own disciples he, he constantly had to endure the fact that his own disciples were more often than not thinking about themselves, their own careers, or their own positions, instead of serving him. And that even as he was laying his own life down to serve them or washing their feet, he endured rejection, contempt, and disinterest, even from his own disciples. He faced on top of that temptations, from the devil. You can read about those in places like Matthew 4. And, and you can imagine not only the temptations there in the wilderness, but the rest of his career as well, or the rest of his time on earth. You can imagine his temptations to anger, to frustration that he would have felt because of God's people constantly ignoring him or misunderstanding him or even rejecting him. So, the Catechism is right to say that Christ's entire life from the moment of his conception was a life of suffering. He humbled himself in order to be able to stand among us because he loved us. He was here because he cared about the human race. And so he endured that humiliation and that suffering for our sake. But even with all of that suffering, it's certainly true that the last week of Christ's life, the week that led to his death, is certainly the most important and critical moment of his life. It's there that he took our place. There he took on himself the punishment that our sins deserved. Well, we saw what this involved already a couple of months ago on Good Friday, and so I won't go into the details of Christ's suffering on the cross again. It is something we need to be reminded of from time to time, especially if we begin to take that suffering for granted. We ought to know what Christ endured for us, not only in his soul, but also on his body. But scripture also doesn't call us to constantly dwell on that affliction either. That's why 
we as, as Reformed Christians, we don't carry crucifixes, crosses with Christ hanging on them, because we are not to dwell on his suffering as much as we are to dwell on the fact that he is now risen and ascended on high. But it is good to know what Christ has endured. And that's why we did that a few months ago, a couple months ago on Good Friday. We recognize that what Christ suffered on the cross is too terrible to describe, but it's exactly what we ourselves deserved. People today still say it's the worst possible way that's ever been invented to, to execute a human being. And we need to understand that also for Christ, the worst of that suffering was not the physical suffering, but the abandonment and the rejection by the Father. That was the worst of it all. God the Father, who always had a perfect, loving, intimate relationship with Christ right from from eternity, and also during His whole earthly life, God the Father turned His back on the Son. In fact, even, even worse than just abandoning him, he poured out his wrath on him, his, his anger, as the catechism says, against the sin of the entire human race, to the point that Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's, he didn't ask that because he didn't know why. He knew why he was there. He asked that because he couldn't endure the Father's rejection. It was too unbearable for him. Those are hard, painful things for us to reflect on and things we ought to reflect on. But we need to understand also that Christ did these things for us in our place. It's very hard to admit that my sins deserved that kind of punishment. I'd like to think that my sins are not serious enough to deserve the wrath of God on the cross. But that's what Scripture teaches, and that's why we also read from Isaiah 53. That chapter is very often called the fifth gospel because it so clearly and in such detail describes the suffering of Christ says he was despised, he was forsaken by men. And it also tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. All the suffering he endured, he didn't just endure for, as, a, as a show of how great sin is. He didn't just endure that to show how angry God is with sin. He endured those so that we would not have to. He endured them in our place. Scripture teaches Christ or scripture teaches that God puts a price on our sin. He cannot let our sin go. We might call our sin no big deal. It's always a big deal before the eyes of God. And it's eternally before the eyes of God apart from Christ. God is just. God is righteous. He's holy. That's what we sang at the beginning of this worship service. Thrice holy. That's the song that the angels sing in the presence of God. He is perfect. And those, that, that holiness, that perfection, those are categories that we human beings on earth have difficulty understanding. We can't understand why God would have to punish sin. 
We don't see why he has to treat it so seriously. We understand that with certain sins, we all agree that men like Hitler deserve eternal punishment. We understand that certain crimes, maybe racists, deserve hell. But we say our own sins don't deserve God's wrath on the cross. But of course, you and I are the guilty party. We have a very imperfect sense of God's justice. We don't easily see how our own sins deserved what Christ endured. And of course, it's not surprising that we find ourselves not agreeing with God on this sentence by nature. We, after all, are the guilty party. You'll never find a criminal that says, my, my punishment that I was given is fair, it's just, I ought to be given this sentence. It's very rare you'll ever hear that from the, from the mouth of a criminal, and far more rare if that punishment is eternal death, the wrath of God forever and ever. So by nature, we resist what Scripture very clearly teaches, that what Christ endured is what we deserved before God. And that's what God's Word tells us. He endured these in our place. The Gospels show us that Pontius Pilate, the the highest authority in the land, declared Jesus innocent. We saw this also on Good Friday. He said, I find no guilt in him, and yet still handed him over to be flogged and crucified. And it's important that that happened, that Pilate, the authority, the official government of the land, declared, declared Christ innocent and yet still had him condemned. He's a representative from God. His motives, of course, were not at all pure, but the, just, the judgment was still official. Jesus was declared innocent and then nevertheless condemned. Galatians 3, verse 13, also emphasizes, as the Catechism teaches, that Christ's crucifixion was, was, it had a very special meaning. As the Catechism says, it's important that he didn't just die in any way. In the Old Testament, a, a criminal's body, sometimes after they were already killed, their body would be hung on a tree as a way of saying, this person hangs between heaven and earth. Earth spits him out, and heaven refuses to accept him. And that was the case with Christ. His crucifixion sent the message that there is no place for him in heaven or on earth. He is rejected by both parties. Well, Christ needed to take that curse on himself because that, brothers and sisters, was our curse. We ought to be hanging between heaven and earth, spit out by God's good earth and rejected by God's righteous dwelling in heaven. This is the gospel of the cross. It's horrible. It's shocking the more you dwell on it. And it's a testimony to the seriousness of our sin as well as to God's amazing love and mercy that he would endure these things in our place. Christ, as the Catechism says, bore the wrath of God against the whole human race. God's perfect justice and righteousness is satisfied in him, and we are set free in him from the punishments that we deserved for our sins. So where does this leave us now as Christians
Well, we know that the story of the gospel does not end on the cross. Christ rose, Christ ascended, and Christ is reigning over this earth. We sang this morning also that he is king over all the kings of the earth. We know that he is now reigning over our world and that we also have a task in bringing that kingdom forward. And part of that task, according to the Apostle Paul, is also that we would suffer as Christ suffered. And that's our second point. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 24, it's a very strange statement he makes. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's a troubling statement from the Apostle Paul, isn't it? What, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean when he says he is filling up what is lacking? Does he mean that Christ's suffering on the cross was almost all the way there but not quite and he's filling up that last little bit? Was Christ's suffering insufficient to pay for our sins? And just so we're clear, this is not just a a one-off statement from Paul. It's not an unusual thing for him to say. Let me quote a couple other similar verses. He says in Romans 8, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, verse Verse 8, also familiar verses, were afflicted in every way, he says, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And then listen to this, he says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. So then again in Colossians 1, he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh. What does Paul mean when he says that? Now, if you're familiar with Paul's theology and Paul's letters, you know that Paul cannot mean at all that there's something insufficient about Christ's afflictions, that they're somehow not enough in themselves. But for Paul, and for me, and for you, There is something lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh and in your flesh. In other words, uh, you can see this again. Paul says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, then, you and I have not filled up in our bodies the same measure of suffering that Christ had to endure in his body. To say it another way, Paul knew that, his, that, that Christ had filled up in his flesh the full measure of the wrath of God against his sins, the full afflictions that we deserved. And as a result, Paul, having seen himself as now united to Christ, it was Paul's desire to be so counted with Christ that his own body would endure the same afflictions. No, of course, we will never have to, have to measure up to that same degree 
of affliction. Thank God we will never have to. That's why Christ bore those afflictions in our place. But because we have been bought with Christ's blood in body and in soul, it should now be our heartfelt desire to lay our lives down to endure those same afflictions that Christ endured as evidence of the fact that we are counted together with him. And all the more so if we're in a case like Paul, where your suffering can bring the gospel further. And that's why he says, I do this on behalf of the church. The reality is there is so much suffering involved in being a Christian, a true disciple of Christ. It's true, we won't have to suffer as much as Christ did, nor probably will we have to suffer in our bodies as much as Paul did. And we haven't, at least not yet, been called even to suffer like so many Christians in the world right now have been called to suffer. Christians who are abused, raped, tortured, and executed for their faith. They are filling up in their bodies the sufferings of Christ. But for us, even here, even where we haven't been called to that same degree of affliction, it should still be our desire to be counted together with Christ in such a way that our bodies, the afflictions on our bodies, reflect that. The sufferings we endure reflect that we are disciples of Christ. We share in his afflictions willingly because he's called us to follow him. In other words, our suffering is how we prove our discipleship. If the kingdom of God was moved forward by Christ's afflictions, and if we can move it forward by our suffering, then we gladly do so, because he called us to do so. Let he who is my disciple take up his cross and follow me. So for Paul, suffering is how we prove our discipleship. And if we don't bear those afflictions today here in Alora, if we don't bear those afflictions on our bodies, we certainly should be carrying those same burdens on our hearts, crying out to God on behalf of those Christians that are bearing those afflictions in their bodies. That's what Hebrews 13 calls us to. Remember those who are in prison as if you are in prison with them, and those who are mistreated because you also are in the body. If Christ hasn't called you to go to prison for your faith or to be tortured for your faith, let your heart carry that same burden on behalf of those who are being afflicted, tortured, and imprisoned. And the reality is, even in our own lives, even though we don't suffer in the flesh as many Christians do, as Paul himself did, and as Christ warned us, we may well have to, we still must embrace the suffering that does come with being a Christian. And that suffering can be very great indeed. There's the constant battle against our sins that can feel like an affliction. It can be frustrating. There's the suffering of laying down our lives for one another, serving each other in places that are uncomfortable, going to places like homeless shelters, enduring discomfort, enduring... uh, challenges and and sufferings in serving one another. There's also the frustrations and the challenges and the hardships of raising children in the fear of the Lord. That's not always easy. It often involves suffering. There's the task of visiting the weak and the afflicted in our own midst, 
sharing their sufferings with them, weeping with those who weep, just as much as we rejoice with those who rejoice. That is a real suffering. They, they say misery loves company, and they don't say that for nothing. When you, when, you, when you serve those who are in misery, you experience that misery. And that bearing up those afflictions is part of our taking up our cross and following Christ. So there's weeping with those who weep. There's sharing with the pain of those who are hurting. There's, that, that involves not, not distancing ourselves then from that pain or, or shutting out the suffering of our fellow Christians from our minds, but instead eagerly sharing in that pain, staying by their side, so that we may, by doing so, show ourselves to be taking up our cross and following Christ. That's what Paul means then when he says, I do my share on behalf of the body in filling up in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. If I am afflicted for serving Christ, I must be afflicted gladly. I must do so willingly. So we too, just like Paul, rejoice at the opportunity to fill up in our bodies the afflictions of Christ and to bear the weight of those afflictions also on our hearts when we don't experience them in our bodies. Of course, we know we can never, ever fill up the same measure of affliction that Christ endured. And we will never have to do so to atone for our own sins or the sins of anyone else. But we do follow him as he calls us also to take up our cross and go after him. And as we suffer, we know there is nothing that can ever be taken away from us for having followed Christ, that we will not regain again, as Christ himself said, a hundredfold in the coming kingdom. And knowing that makes us willing to endure his afflictions, knowing the treasure that we also have in store for us. Amen. Let's